0: There are many examples of of a tech company essentially completely taking over an uh, established industry. But I think that happens because the established players, like you said, are so afraid of the tech that they wait and they wait and they dip their toes a little bit and they make a lab and they put a little bit of budget aside, giving the tech company years and years and years to basically topple the traditional players. that the three things that myself and uh, the other execs at the post are gold on uh, is how fast do you move the second one is no sacred cow don't just do things because that's the way it's always been done the third thing is debate but commit and these three uh, pillars are the uh, pillars of our cultural DNA uh, that helps us to have a culture that embraces what's coming, rather than run from it. How much resources
1: do you put in defining the right metrics, Mm -hmm. uh, compared to then work on them? Mm -hmm. Because I think uh, that comes to the point that um, the difference between efficiency and being effective you can do the wrong thing very effe-
0: uh, efficiently, yes, yes, yes. but you're not affected. That's right. So how much energy uh, time do you should do put you a invest? lot, a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and we have learned this the hard way.
1: Welcome back to this episode of the Sparker Podcast, where I uncover the mindsets and tactics of exceptional people in innovation, technology and leadership. I had the opportunity to talk to Shailesh Prakash, who is the Chief Information Officer of the Washington Post and one of the most influential minds in tech. The Post is a big institution in journalism, as you all know. And in 2013, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, has purchased the Post and with that, an exciting transformation has begun. That's what this conversation will be mostly about. How do you successfully transform a traditional business into a digital powerhouse, with all its implications regarding culture, mindset, concrete tactics, and so on? Shailesh has a lot of experience to share with you guys, and his track record backs up his strategy, as The Post is ranked the eighth most innovative company in the world, together with others like Amazon, Google, or Apple. This is according to a list published by Fast Company. So without further ado, take out your pen and paper, iPad or whatever and be ready to take some notes from this interesting conversation with Shailesh Prakash. You've been at The Post since 2011. And then in 2013, Jeff Bezos uh, from Amazon bought the Washington Post. And I could imagine that there have been many uh, kind of changes in mindset or culture as a direct or indirect consequence of Jeff Bezos buying the Post. Could you please talk a little bit about these changes in mindset and culture that you've observed?
0: Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having me um... It's wonderful to be in Zurich. Um, Yeah, so talking about the change uh, that has come about since Jeff bought us uh, about five years ago. um, You know, people often talk about the fact that Jeff has come to the Post and he has poured in resources to expand our newsroom, to expand our technology. And uh, that is very true. And it's very, very important uh, that he's invested in us. Uh, in such a uh, large uh, fashion but i think but I think that the biggest uh, change and, and uh, uh, you know impact that jeff has brought to the Washington post beyond the addition of resources and so on is the cultural change uh, that has come and uh, there are many aspects that have changed culturally uh, but if i were to pick one it is this whole concept of experimentation that he has really brought uh, to the post and has freed us up to be um, innovative and to try a lot of things that perhaps normally we would be a little too afraid to try. Uh, and, and so, and uh, you know, he often says when we are talking about something or you know somewhat hesitant to try something, uh, Jeff often asks us. Uh, look, is this a one-way door? And by that he means, is this a door that if you go through, you can never come back? If you can never come back, then it's a one-way door. But if it's not a one-way door, then one should not hesitate to experiment. Because, you know, by definition, an experiment may fail and can be ended. So that has freed us up uh, culturally, to try a lot of things that perhaps we would not have tried in the past. And then the second aspect, which is related to the experimentation, is to double down on things that work. Uh, So, you know, oftentimes you run a lot of experiments, uh, but, you know, human nature is to continue to focus on things that don't work and try to keep making them better. Um, it's important for us to also see the things that are actually working and then double down on that. So when we do our experiments, if you find a few positive surprises, what are we doing to double down on those positive surprises? So these are some of the cultural aspects uh, that have um, come uh, to be within the DNA of the post um, since Jeff bought us. And uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, this is a type of culture that I enjoy working in. And a lot of us uh, technologists and innovators and uh, digitally savvy uh, people uh, love to be a part of. I can imagine that this is a good,
1: uh, metaphorically speaking, a good soil where uh, technologists and innovators can flourish. Yes, that's exactly right. So um, to give me a bit more context also about the post is um, uh, if I'm correct, the um, digital traffic at the Washington Post today is roughly a hundred million uh, monthly unique visitors. Mm-hmm. And that is up from 20 million five years ago. So that's a pretty impressive 5x improvement and um, I-, I wonder how much, of that 5x growth, would you say is, uh, or can one attribute to this cultural change or to um, your work and the work of your team in tech and innovation compared to factors beyond your control, like, let's say, Donald Trump being elected or whatever?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, and yes, the traffic is now approximately about a 100 million a month. Uh, that's the US only traffic. Uh, If you add in worldwide, uh, it's probably another 30% beyond that. Um, But yes, uh, to your question of how much is this due to perhaps the cultural change, the innovations uh, versus other factors, look, it's very hard to say. Um, uh, Being an engineer by training, I think the only real way to have answered that is to do an A-B test, which of course we can't do. Um, And a lot of it also has got to do with uh, uh, simply the fact that we have expanded the newsroom significantly. Uh, Marty Barron is our uh, executive editor, widely considered to be the best in the world. Uh, He knows what he's doing. And from him and his very talented team, uh, we have uh, made a lot of progress uh, breaking absolutely groundbreaking stuff on what goes on in Washington, D.C., and how it affects the world. Uh, So a lot of it, uh, obviously, is due to the great content we produce. Uh, But yes, uh, there is an element uh, to, you know, um, the, the basic question of, yes, content is so very important. And If there's only one thing you can choose, it has to be awesome content. That is the product of the Washington Post. But in today's world, uh, you know that uh, Google has spoilt us with its speed. Um, you have beautiful products from Apple and Samsung that have spoilt us with the beauty of their design. You have the convenience of Amazon and the customer care of Amazon that we all now expect from every other company. So consumers, of course, demand the best possible content, but you also have to have the best technology and the best design in order to reach the numbers that we've been able to reach. So it's hard to say how much is what, uh, but they're all tied in together. The circumstances that we find ourselves in, the great content that we produce, and all the work that we do in design and engineering are all mixed in there uh, to get that number. And then you talk about uh, 100 million uniques, and that's just basically the traffic piece Uh, We are also well north of uh, one and and a half million paying digital subscribers, which which has been another uh, great uh, digital story uh, at the Washington Post. And those digital subscribers that we've gotten uh, also serve uh, to grow our page views. So people often ask, should it be advertising or subscriptions? Uh, In fact, uh, in many ways, they are synergistic with each other. Mm -hmm.
1: I um I know that obviously you can't just say that uh, tech is only responsible for that growth, of course. Um but the reason for this question was that I think I can remember that um you once said that uh you have tools to automate or auto, automatically generate content in very structured areas like sports or maybe elections. And I think to remember that you said um with Um, Being able to create that content automatically, you can create or or cover topics um, far broader than you would be able to if you would just work with human labor. And that long tail of all this automated content uh, is still very significant in regards to to your traffic. So that was the the background of of my question.
0: Is that a true memory? It's a true statement. It's a true statement. Um, the product we have uh, that does content generation, we call it HelioGraph. Um, graph as in paragraph and Helio because it does it at the speed of light because it's a machine. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, HelioGraph uh, can't do a deep analysis piece or it can't do an opinion piece. Uh, we use it in structured areas, like you said. Uh, we first debuted it for the Olympics. Uh, because uh, sports scores and results are structured data, and we use it very heavily uh, during the elections. And So what the machine is able to do, like you said, is um, it can cover basically, let's say, every high school football game in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, for example. Uh, We would not be able to send a reporter to every game or even if we got the data, to then sit down and write about every game. Um, During the elections, we can cover pretty much every race in the country uh, based on the data. And so that gives us a much wider swath of content. Uh, It helps with things like SEO, especially if you link it correctly between the various uh, uh, articles that you have. Uh, It helps with instant updates. Uh, so it's not just the breadth of stories, but as things change, the machine can change it almost in real time, and it also helps with the breadth of platforms. Uh, you could do it on your website, your apps, of course, but it also in distributed uh, platforms. You know, it, it should update in Alexa, it should update on Twitter, it should update on Facebook, etc., etc. So breadth of content, uh, speed of updates. And breadth of platform, uh, which then actually helps us uh, helps to free uh, our very talented journalists to then focus on what they do best, to do the deeper analysis, to do, you know more opinions, and so on. So that's the gist of it. Uh, and yes, I mean, it's it's a significant traffic driver, of course. Uh, like like I've said before, there are the head stories that are typically human generated that drive a lot of the traffic as our top stories. But then the heliograph generated stories, although each individual story may have very few users and very few page views, when added together can yield a significant portion for sure. This
1: um, heliograph tool is um, part of a whole digital publishing platform, one could Mm -hmm. say, right? That's called Arc. And to me, uh, this Arc platform kind of resembles to the AWS of Amazon, where you take something that you are doing anyway and do it do it really well. Why not make it to um, or build this towards a software as a service for others and then benefit from that? Is that um, is that a true yes. kind of comparison?
0: Absolutely. Okay. The AWS is uh, an absolute is absolutely the inspiration for Arc. Of course it's a much smaller scale it's nowhere near the size of AWS uh, but yes uh, arc is a suite of technology tools and products you could call it a platform it's more a set of loosely connected uh, digital tools and we call it arc why because it spans the arc of publishing so all the way from creation of content Uh, to distribution of content, uh, to analytics uh, for that content, and all the way from images and articles uh, to video and blogs, connections with uh, Facebook Instant, connection with Apple News, etc. So it's really an arc that spans the needs for a modern publisher. And I don't just mean uh, publishers where you're a newspaper publisher, uh, but also brands, also broadcasters, any any uh, industry that has publishing needs, and in today's world, many 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 brands, whether you're in banking or finance, or or, or in athletics or e-commerce, have publishing needs. Um, so that essentially is the gist of Arc. And yes, HelioGraph is a part of these suite of tools that we offer. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that this um, work that you've uh,
1: done on Arc is one of the reasons why you were named, first of all, the most innovative media uh, company out there by Fast Company, but also, and before you mentioned Apple, Google, Amazon, those obvious innovators that spoil us with great products. Um, even together with those in the list, you are the eighth most innovative company full stop. And I think that is very impressive that a media company or a publishing company, which is traditional, a traditional business, um, is ranking so high up there. So um, why do you think that is? Does it come back again to the mindset of experimentation and, and those kinds of things?
0: Yes. Um, and of course, it's a tribute to all the wonderful designers and engineers and all the a very savvy, uh, digitally savvy um, people we have in the newsroom um, that we've got that uh, honor uh, to be ranked so high up. But yeah, essentially, if you boil it down, you know, our aspiration at the Washington Post, uh, like I was alluding to before, is we really want to be excellent in journalism where our brand is very strong and most people... Uh, will give us that, that we are a very, very powerful brand in journalism. But we also want to supplement that by being extremely strong on the product and design and technology side. And us, I think, being good at both is what has fueled that ranking to be as high uh, as it is. Uh, And yeah, I do think that at the heart of our... um, engineering abilities uh, is one we are very talented uh, designers and product managers and engineers uh, but also that there is a freedom to experiment and innovate and like you were saying it's a very fertile bed for uh, seeds of innovation to sprout and grow into healthy plants and hopefully become very large trees Mm -hmm. at some point
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, I just learned prior to this um, podcast conversation that obviously there also has to be the manpower behind it. And even though most people, I would say, associate um, Washington Post with journalists, publishers, you have today a team of 350 tech guys at the Post um, growing from, you said, I think, 100 people uh, seven years ago. So you also have, need to have the, the brain power and the manpower behind it. Otherwise you can't uh, lift that that burden.
0: Yes, no, I, absolutely. I mean, we have a very large engineering team, but I also want to say um, that, um, you know, there are two ways of uh, growing. Uh, one One way of growing is to, you know, Make a plan up front and to say, oh, you know, these are the things I'm going to do. And for this, I'll need 50 people. And for this, I'll need 70 people. And here, are another 25, and so on. And typically, plans like that uh, fail in my ex- experience. Um, the smarter growth strategy is to begin with uh, a much smaller, much more scrappy much more aggressive um, appetite of doing things in uh, various uh, dimensions. And then like we were talking about, find some of the successes and then double down on it. So yes, at this point, we are close to about uh, 350 engineers, the vast majority of whom are dedicated uh, to the growth of Arc because we are serious about it as a business. Uh, But it was not always like that. Um, ARC at one point uh, was essentially uh, five engineers uh, working to make it available uh, for university publications. And as we've signed on clients, uh, we've gone back to make the case to grow it even bigger. And that's how we are uh, where we are. Uh, People often say, oh, you know, how can we uh, rival the Washington Post They've got such a large engineering team. It wasn't like that uh, all the time. Um, It's just been the hard work of some of these people that have allowed us to go and hire more and more. And in fact, right now, uh, I have uh, over uh, 50 uh, headcount to grow it even more Uh, because uh, just today we've announced uh, that uh, we now have a very large presence in Latin America and it's successes like that that help us to grow the team even more. That's really nice. And I think it um, it
1: shows that you are not here to to stop, but to, to continue growing. And I wonder, um, Amazon is on number five on that uh, most innovative <laughs> company list.
0: Yes. So how long will it take and what is your plan to top them? <laughs> it would give me great pleasure uh, to take Jeff aside and say, you know, Jeff, yesterday... We beat Amazon as the most uh, innovative uh, company in the world. And I suspect it will give Jeff a lot of pleasure as well. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine it would be really cool. So um, we already
1: touched on several topics like experimentation is one, corporate culture. Um, What I would be interested in is now also to talk about the um, uh, transformation uh, that you did from a traditional uh, company or a a company with a lot of tradition like publishing or finance also has a lot of tradition and moving that kind of business into a, a future leaning data-driven kind of company. So as a devil's advocate, it might be a stupid question, but still to cover the basics. Um, why is this a transformation or a transition worth making?
0: Yeah. Well, First of all, um, if if you want to directly answer your question, I would ask, well, what is the option? You know, um, if everything is going awesome, you should still look at seeing what's coming down in the future. You should, in my opinion, never be afraid to cannibalize yourself. Otherwise, somebody else is going to cannibalize you. And there are so many quotes to that effect. Um, Andy Grove said, "Only the paranoid survive." Um, there's the book by Clay Christensen called *The Innovator's Dilemma*, and history is uh, full is is full of examples of companies who sat uh, on their laurels only to see uh, them get devastated in the long run. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, you should look it up. But uh, I've heard uh, people say, and I think it's true that the only companies that have been around for 300 plus years, uh, there are very few, and I think most of them are beer companies. So if you're in the beer industry, I think you're okay. <laughs> but if you're in anything else, you better start thinking. You um, always need some booze. You always need some beer, for sure. <laughs> uh, so uh, so that's, that's the gist of it. Now, in our case, uh, you, know, you if you looked at the Washington Post uh, maybe 20 years ago, then definitely one could argue that we were, you know, pulling in the money hand over fist. Um, but by the time I arrived at the post seven years ago, I mean, it was obvious that uh, our classifieds business had been absolutely devastated uh, by the likes of, you name it, Craigslist, there was a time, uh, you know, for jobs, LinkedIn, you name it, uh, Cars.com, uh, Pretty much everything that the classifieds business depended on, there were niche, pure play, digital-only verticals that had eaten our lunch. Um, And I still remember the very first meeting we had with Jeff. Um, He asked us, uh, I mean, he, he made a statement saying, yes, look, I know that the internet has come and destroyed your business. But we also have to look at what gifts the internet has brought for you. And that's a very important lesson, I think, that is true of all industries. When a new paradigm, whether it's the internet or artificial intelligence or the rise of mobile phones or or what any paradigm you look at, it comes bringing disruption, but it also comes bringing opportunities. Absolutely, And the culture has to be such that you must be poised to experiment in the coming waves as opposed to running from it and circling your wagons and saying, you know, uh, let's just retreat to higher ground and not play in the uh, floodwaters that, are, that have arrived. And so in that world, I, I, I absolutely think that... Um, one of the things that the post has been able to do has been to embrace the change and experiment with it uh, as opposed to run from it. And that type of culture makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it worth it? Especially in our industry, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see an option. There is no option. That's been a very interesting answer
1: to a very dumb question. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> very much. All.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm.
1: And... Um, uh, you mentioned the, not only to focus on the harm that new technology brings, but also on the gifts. And in that sense, I would like to ask you, um, what should, um, people in traditional businesses or maybe people in general understand today about, um, technology, how it works, how it will affect us, what kind of opportunities it brings. So obviously this would fill a, an entire conversation on its own, but, um, What are some of the the main gifts of technology that people should actually embrace and work with?
0: Right. So a few things. There are many parts to your question. Um, Let me just touch on a few. Uh, First of all, I think it's important for all of us to understand, especially the executives at the highest levels of any industry, uh, is that technology builds upon technology. This It is not the case that here comes a new thing and and there's potentially going to be uh, some kind of a linear growth of that technology. And so we may not have to be the first mover, even second mover, 10th mover, 50th mover is okay. In other words, we have time. Unfortunately, in most technology trends, it's not linear. In fact, as the technology becomes more mature, you will find it will have exponential growth. So you don't really have time. You may think you have time, but if you don't move fast enough, you will be so far behind that those that have adopted it will essentially have a, you know, you can't catch up. Mm -hmm. Retail is a perfect example. Uh, It's not like the big retailers didn't see e-commerce. They just waited too long. And now the gap is so large between them and a player like Amazon, and I would posit that most of them will never catch up, you know? So, uh,
1: yes. Yeah, You, I think that's a very great answer because you you didn't start with naming uh, different buzzwords like AI or whatever, yeah. but a basic principle, a yeah. way of thinking. Yes. Uh, yes. The yes. thinking of exponential uh, yes progress and not yes. linearity. That's right. So I think that's very important. And um, you also said you have to move fast. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good segue to a question. I, uh, wanted to ask you that, um, when you have to move and make this transformation and transition to a more digitized or yeah more digital company, um, I could imagine that there are different phases or also, uh, quite honestly speaking, a lot of friction in that process. Um, could you tell us about um, how you experienced that transformation in uh, in the post or in your previous career also? How can you deal with those frictions that will occur?
0: For sure? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, uh, there's, there's, there's a reason that, you know, you consistently have very small startups that start up in somebody's garage ultimately topple huge giants of the industry. You know, what is it that those startups can bring to the table that these massive giants don't? It's not funding. I mean, the huge giants have a lot of money to experiment and do R&D and so on. Uh, <clears throat> I think that the biggest ingredient that the smaller uh nimble startups bring to the table that the larger players uh don't uh, is essentially friction there is there are so many vested interests in the larger companies who have done things a certain way uh, and done things in a way that have been very successful for them that there's a lot of friction to try and then do things that might actually uh hurt the way that that things have been been done in the past. So with that, I'd just like to offer an anecdote that may be useful uh, for other industries to think about. And it goes back to the philosophy Jeff has at The Post. I mean, when Jeff took over The Post, I talked about the cultural shift. One of the big cultural shifts that he brought is the way that we top executives in The Post are compensated. Uh, we It used to be the case that our compensation, uh, our bonus structure was based on whether you met or failed to meet your operating income. Uh, revenue minus costs, operating income. If you met your operating income number, you made your bonus. If you didn't, well, you didn't make it. One of the first things Jeff did to change our culture, and it stands to even today, Um In fact, I'm going through the review process right now, and it's right there on uh, my review that the three things that myself and uh, the other execs at the post are gold on uh, is how fast do you move? Those are the exact words. How fast do you move? The second one is basically no sacred cows. Again, those are the exact words. Don't just do things because that's the way it's always been done. Oh, we don't touch this. Well, because we've been doing this and it's been very successful for us in the past. So we shouldn't touch it. So no sacred cows. And then the third thing is debate, but commit or put another way, multiple paths to yes. And these three uh, pillars are the uh, pillars of our cultural DNA uh, that helps us to have a culture that embraces what's coming rather than run from it and um, going back to your question i think they are very very important these three tenets to to understand to study and then uh, to use to reduce the friction that often comes uh, with embracing change mm-hmm.
1: so it's it sounds like there's obviously a, a battle between let's call it Old and new, mm-hmm. quote unquote, or one could maybe also say from between the core business and potential future businesses, and um, you named incentives in uh, for the bonuses that can be um, a trick to address that um, mm-hmm. that issue. Um, what are your thoughts regarding the um, organizational structure? Yeah, yeah. So one sees different theories or ways of doing. Some say, well, the innovation team has to be completely separate, um, separated from the daily business. Others say, no, it, everybody has to be mixed so that the, the DNA is distributed equally or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on how yeah. to implement that in a organizational <coughs> structure?
0: <coughs> Excuse me, I, that's a very good question. Um, a, a couple of points. Uh, first of all, I don't know if there is a clear winner that this structure always wins over the other. I'm not sure there is one. Uh, but I'll give you my own opinions. Uh, first and foremost, I think that the leadership, the leadership of the company, well, which is where the buck stops, has to be, has to be um, willing to embrace change. It's pointless setting up labs and giving a lot of PR talks and so on, if the core executive team that runs the company doesn't fundamentally believe in it. It's pointless setting aside funds to do it. It must come from the core executive team. And uh, as a corollary, just to that statement, I strongly uh, urge that the executive teams that want to make the change should treat the person who's in charge of technology as a first-class citizen. Oftentimes, we tech execs get lofty titles, chief technology officer, chief digital officer, chief innovation, whatever it is. But in reality, they are not there for the most fundamental business decisions. They are still considered to be, oh yeah, now we need to bring the tech guy in to make sure that he or she executes the plan. They are not there in the making of the plan. Uh, so <clears throat> no matter what structure you choose, labs or mainstream or whatever, I think it's fundamental that the person who runs technology is uh, at, at, at front and center and is involved in all the decision-making. Because I'll tell you one thing, um, I enjoy that at the post, uh, thanks to my CEO, Fred, uh, who's, who's very tech-savvy, who believes in tech, and of course, due to Jeff, as you might imagine. Uh, but I do see a lot of other industries where my counterpart um, has a lofty title, is probably very well paid, and so on, uh, but is not involved in the hardcore strategy and the forward-moving thoughts uh, of the organization. That's important. In, in to your question of you know what are the different models, I happen to believe in the model where you need to not isolate um, a tech team or an innovation team uh, in, in a separate lab or in a separate location. There may be needs to do that once in a while when you're building a new product where you separate them out from headquarters and from the noise. But by and large, by and large, your brightest and best people should be part of the regular army and not some special forces division somewhere else. Now, because like I said, I mean, I don't think it's an option uh, to tinker in a lab with a few people for an extended amount of time because you don't have that much time. You know, that, that whatever is coming at you uh, will either turn out to be a fad, or if it establishes, will move very, very quickly and if you take too long, you, you will not be able to mm-hmm. catch up. It's it's very hard to catch up. I think
1: exactly to that point that I could imagine that many traditional businesses think today or have the impression that uh, the race is lost anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and to them, tech is daunting. It's mm-hmm. kind of, uh, we've lost it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I could imagine that it's easier to become excellent in tech mm-hmm. in addition to being excellent at your core business mm-hmm. than being excellent and tech in tech and then just kind of copy the, let's say a hundred year old DNA That's of your true. core business. Yes. So how do you think about that? Yes, Is yes. it harder to become excellent in tech or harder to uh, become excellent in a core business? A I,
0: I, I think the uh, becoming for a tech company to become excellent in a established core business is, I think, very, very hard. Hmm. Now, obviously, there are many um, examples of of a tech company essentially completely taking over an, uh, you know, uh, established industry. But I think that happens because the established players, like you said, are so afraid of the tech that they wait and they wait and they dip their toes a little bit and they make a lab and they put a little bit of budget aside and then they circle the wagons, giving the tech company years and years and years to basically topple the traditional player. Uh, So so, uh, to your point, I do think that, say, in the publishing industry, in my opinion, it's easier for the Washington Post to become an excellent tech, and design and product player than for one of the tech companies to become an excellent content producer, especially in the news and information world. And, you know, the examples are so many. Uh, fake news is a perfect example, you know. Um, so, but, but I want to make one point there um, about uh, this uh, uh, whole point of, you know, daunting and uh, how to overcome it. Look, it's a little bit of a simplification, but in general, per industry, there are two types of tech, I think. One is the plumbing, you know, what is your basic bread and butter that you need to use to do your business? And the second is, uh, you know, where you really want to differentiate yourself. And what I find uh, in in many of the traditional industries, especially in the news and publishing industry, but I suspect it's true in other places too, that these uh, players have gotten so behind in the plumbing itself that even though the senior leadership of the company has a fairly clear idea on what their differentiator is, that The engineering team is so overwhelmed with the plumbing and keeping it up to date and upgrading it and dealing with the 500 vendors that constitute that plumbing that they are not able to make any progress at all in the differentiator. And that leads to all the frustration of IT being a glue factory and nothing comes on time and all that. Those people are drowning and just keeping the plumbing going. And and so that's my point uh, into let's if you choose publishing for example I do think that it might make sense for uh, if 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 uh, publishing is what we are talking about is to let the basic plumbing of publishing being be done with a relatively modern player who supplies an end-to-end system and then use your scarce engineering high powered high paid uh, smart engineering resources to really work on the differentiator that you want to do mm-hmm. that differentiator could be in a hardcore engineering area like AI you know but you can't put two people in AI mm-hmm. and say oh we will figure out how to do I don't know intelligent banking mm-hmm. or something like it, it can't be done like that uh, and 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 so is it an option for you to get your basic plumbing? to be managed by another vendor, a modern vendor, not 300 vendors, but a relatively large player so that you can focus on your core with engineering talent, with sufficient numbers that you might actually end up making decent returns. Mm
1: -hmm. And the talent, and what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is the talent that you have in your corporation would be wasted if it has to just be... Um, uh, working on the the plumbing itself all the time. That's right. But but the plumbing needs to be
0: done perfectly well, of course. You want a modern stack. Mm -hmm. You want an integrated stack. Hopefully, from a few vendors, not like a plethora of them Mm -hmm. who are all constantly upgrading and you have a large staff trying to make it all work together. Mm -hmm. Um, But hopefully, a modern stack, hopefully, not too many vendors... Um, And it's not like you don't keep anybody uh, of your own to work on that system, but that shouldn't be the majority of your focus. Because then you'll struggle in what your true differentiator is. Mm -hmm. So,
1: I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. If you like what you hear, why not collaborate with Sparker on your next business event? Sparker drives strategy and innovation workshops forward as a goal-oriented facilitator. And Sparker can also contribute to your next high-caliber conference as moderator or speaker. If you want to learn more, visit www.sparker.ch moderation. You'll find the link in the description of this episode. And now back to the rich conversation of this Sparker podcast. It doesn't matter if we talk about the plumbing or the, the shiny differentiators. Um, no matter what we talk about, experimentation that you mentioned a couple of times now is a good way forward to make progress on plumbing and the differentiators. And um so at the headlines you do, uh, sorry, at the, the Washington Post, you do a lot of experimentation. For example, what kind of headline works best or what kind of paywall works best and so on. And um, maybe if you abstract from your own business of publishing, um, can you kind of recommend um, something in regards to experimentation? What kind of circumstances are needed uh, to conduct experiments successfully, be it, be it technology-wise or cultural-wise, is there some uh, very important basics
0: to? Yeah, right? metrics. Ma- the heart of it is metrics. Uh, uh, in order to uh, be able to understand whether an experiment worked or failed, there has to be uh, an uh, good understanding. A simple understanding, not a complicated one. It has to be simple, of what are the metrics of success or failure. Uh, that that is a by the way, that's a very hard thing to do, uh, to understand what is the metric of success for a particular experiment. May
1: I ask you right on that point, um, how much time, or uh, just uh, relatively speaking, how much resources do you put in? Defining the right metrics, mm-hmm. uh, compared to then work on them, mm-hmm. because I think uh, that comes to the point that um, the difference between efficiency and being effective. Yes. You can do the wrong thing very effe- uh, efficiently, yes. Yes, yes. but you're not
0: effective. That's right. So how much yes. energy or uh, time you should do put you a invest? lot, a lot, mm-hmm. a lot, um, and we have learned this the hard way. We have shifted significantly. Uh, to being a company that is not afraid to experiment, but it took us another iteration to understand that it doesn't mean that you just put as many experiments out there because then it becomes very confusing to kill the experiment. You know, you should not have lots and lots and lots of experiments running forever because then it becomes another headache to manage. Uh, and at least in our case, we run these experiments with real users. We split the traffic to do it. And there's only so much that you can split up when you have a 100, you know, the pie is 100%. If all these little things take 5% here, 6% here, 7% here, 8% here, and then you reach a point where you have to add another piece on top of the existing 5%, it becomes very confusing. So yes, uh, it takes time. Uh, it's hard to do. And I, I do think it's worth spending the time uh, to, one, get the metrics right, and I think they should be simple. If they are too complicated, nobody understands it. And more importantly, you'll probably mess up in measuring it. So it should be fairly simple, the metrics, uh, simple to understand, simple to uh, implement, uh, but do uh, get it set up up front. And if you're able to do that, then like you said, I think uh, it becomes much easier uh, to also force what is the true north that you are heading towards. So, if if the true north you're heading towards uh, is revenue from subscriptions, then it's one of the things I do is look across the experiments we run and see how many of those experiments are attempting to increase that number, and that gives you some coherence of. Uh, what's the area that you're experimenting in, and what are all the other experiments that are important and interesting, but perhaps, uh, uh, you know, are not serving us as well as they should. Because there is, there, there is definitely... Keep in mind that when you do a cultural shift, you can make the pendulum go too far. And that too will hurt you. And what that will do, I think, in most industries, certainly in our industry, is it will make the people who were causing the friction, say, I told you, I mean, this is a bad idea. Look what's going on. It's crazy. You think that experiment A, B, F, G, N, do you even understand what it is? See, it's crazy. Let's just go back to doing what we know. So having some coherence is important for sure, and metrics, I think, are at the root of it. And this um, uh, thoughtfulness
1: with um, planning experimentation um, how would you, maybe again, from a organizational perspective, uh, how do you coordinate that? I mean, um, is it the, um, the C level that says these are the metrics and everybody has to execute or on a team level? Does also the team have mm-hmm. the, the authority to do experiments? How do you coordinate yeah. that in a, in a company?
0: That's a, b- <laughs> So ideally, you, of course, want the top level of the company uh, to sort out what is true north, uh, have the second level of metrics of what the true north actually means, and then for the rest of the teams to go off of that. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, I personally think that that is uh, fiction. It's very hard that if you take five executives from any top company, Take them separately and say, name the top two metrics, that they will all coherently say the same thing. Uh, maybe there are some companies like that, but I haven't seen too many. So, yeah, you may get one or two metrics from the top, but there will be many that have that should come from the innovation and you know, smart creatives in the company. Um, And so, you know, to put a fine point on that, it goes back to the multiple paths to yes. Somebody working as a product manager, three levels removed from the CTO, should not get stuck in getting his or her ideas to be able to be experimented upon. If his or her boss says no, there should be other paths to get to yes. and so it's a mix. I think uh, one or two of the top metrics can certainly and will probably come from the top of the company. But to assume that, you know, uh, the set of metrics that drive the company forward is all going to be thought of by the executives is probably not the model that uh, actually happens. Nor I think is a model that you want. You want the actual doers and the smart creatives to come up with ways in which to push the organization. Mm -hmm. Sometimes within boundaries, but, you know, in general, push it forward. Talking about subscriptions, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our true north is subscriptions. We set the metrics of how much we want to grow, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, what does it mean? You know, does it mean uh, subscriptions just for our news product? Or should we have a new vertical that talks about travel and you do subscriptions for that uh it's within the realm of subscriptions but it's certainly very different in terms of the product that you build and the metric that you'll measure you know mm-hmm. so i think we could uh, go on and on on that yeah. topic alone
1: yes. um i would like to uh focus a little bit or make a deep dive so to speak on um on One experiment that you are doing at the post, which is experimenting with AI, Uh, I think that you are, um, a lot of the experiments you do have, have nothing to do with AI, but there are some where you are experimenting with it. And now, um, when you look at, uh, recommendation engines, for example, um, Obviously, many recommendation engines we know, be it Netflix or Spotify or um, Amazon, etc., they are built to to show you more of what you like. And this is something uh, problematic or very interesting challenge in journalism, because I think one could argue that a recommendation engine in journalism should not show you more of what you like, but maybe broaden your horizons, expose you to Uh, Different opinions. You already mentioned fake news yourself earlier in that conversation. Um, So, um, what are your thoughts on how AI could maybe um, help to burst those filter bubbles instead of creating them with Mm -hmm. recommendation Mm -hmm. engines? Is that something you can talk about? And if not, yeah, we we have
0: experimented with something. Now, unfortunately, the numbers are not very strong, but I'll tell you what we have tried. And I'll also tell you a few other thoughts that we are working on. So we came up with this product. We called it CounterPoint. Okay. And the whole thing was, if there was a uh, a piece on the Washington Post that had a certain opinion. Mm-hmm. Not, not even? Yeah, mostly opinion pieces, basically. Um, then could we show as a counterpoint, and we can talk about the UX, uh, a story that had uh, a different opinion? Not necessarily opposite opinion, but a different opinion. And in some cases, three. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Simple things like who's responsible for the great economy uh, of the United States? Uh, Is it the current president? Is it the past president? Is it the uh, Fed? Or is it just, you know, things are going well uh, organically? <clears throat> and sometimes the post gets a reputation of being a little bit more liberal. But in fact, uh, our opinions, uh, you know, and you can check it out, uh, have a very wide variety that they talk about. So first of all, you need enough content for this to work. And and. We found we have enough diverse content. So the machine would figure out uh, things like, is this a left-leaning? Is this a right-leaning? What is it talking about? And then go and find other articles that either were opposite or at least not in the same direction as this article and automatically put that in the body of what you were reading. We tried two UXs. One was... You went into that article, you were reading it, and right there, just like an ad, you would see, here's a counterpoint. And we tried to build a certain UX for counterpoints that you would recognize in the future. The other UX was uh, within the recommendation engine. If we showed an article, right next to it, we would say, and here's a counterpoint to click here. Mm -hmm. Um, What we found is that uh, Unfortunately, um, readers' behavior is they want to read more of the same type. So I'm not saying the click throughs were zero, but whether it was a relatively left leaning article that was showing a right leaning opinion or a right leaning article that was showing a left leaning opinion, um, people would not typically click through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, this is the filter bubble is, is an issue. Mm-hmm. It's definitely an issue.
1: But that, uh, it, that kind of sounds like the, the filter bubble is less a product of a platform, but more a result of human nature
0: or a yes, kind of a human psychology. That's true. Uh, although, again, this is an opinion. I don't know if it's scientific yep. fact. I do think that the filter bubble, uh, the base of it is at least at this point in time, uh, us humans trying to validate what we think the world should be, for sure. But the platform can make it much worse. Uh, If you look at social media, there, the filter bubble is not just the recommendation engine that shows you stuff, but people like you, who you are friends with, also sending you stuff to accelerate your you know, uh, opinion on that topic. Uh, So it's absolutely the case that I think people are at the heart of it, but I think social media platforms uh, surface stuff much more because they are much more people-centric than an algorithmic-centric thing. Because at least in our algorithmic science, uh, I agree that, yeah, you can't um, make somebody click on something he doesn't want to, but you certainly don't have to Promote the viral stories that all your friends are pushing as well, you know. Um, so there is more diversity, perhaps not in the exact same topic you're looking for, but in other subjects that could come in there. Mm-hmm. So
1: now we um, started to talk about um, uh, behavior of uh, humans getting information, how they read or uh, generally consume news, yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah. We at a very brief um mentioning of AI. And now when we broaden up the, the spectrum a little bit and look boldly into the future, we said in the beginning of our conversation, technology builds on top of each other. Yeah. We can expect um exponential developments. So that means that um, the way we how we consume or interact with information in let's say the next five, 15 25 years will probably change drastically. Um, So now we uh, kind of are entering the um, uh, brainstorming, getting crazy area of this conversation, because I would be interested in what are your bold visions or predictions, how we will consume or
0: interact with information in the future. Yes. A couple of things. Um, Distant future, I'm not sure. I tell my kids this all the time. Uh, I believe, so there are many different views on AI, right? Um, I studied AI uh, during my master's degree and I had a hard time grasping, uh, and it's probably just me, but I had a hard time grasping how this technology would ever be viable. Because if you look at the nitty gritty of the basics of AI, at least uh, the compute power required to get it to work at scale, uh, you know, you would need a supercomputer basically to do that. Even things like uh, weather modeling, for example, it's, the computations are so much that it was simply not feasible uh, back in '93 when I was doing my masters that you would have access to that compute power. Now, fast forward to now, and you know the compute power on my iPhone is so much more than the machine I had in my grad school engineering lab. And then now with things like AWS and uh, the software frameworks like TensorFlow from Google and so on, uh, you've got this access. Modest CIOs like me have access to compute power and software frameworks that now begin to make AI possible. So that revolution had to occur in order for us to reach into that. Right now, now uh, having worked now for twenty-five years, I and having had a sense of how technology actually develops, I tell my kids all the time that I fundamentally believe that in their lifetime. Now, my son is ten; daughter is fifteen. In their lifetime, the world will be fundamentally different. Fundamentally. Not like the iPhone came about, or we got access to the web. But fundamentally different. And my son was asking me the other day, Dad, do you mean like I might marry a robot? Is that what you mean? I, I, Possible. Daughter wants to study medicine. There's this guy, Vinod Koslav, the founder of Sun, which is where I used to work. Uh, who went to, I think, Stanford Medical School and told those uh, aspiring doctors that you guys should stop studying medicine, instead uh, go to acting school because the robots will run medicine and we'll only need humans to tell other humans the bad news about the disease that they have. That the robot may not want to do. So you, the actor, will have to go with a lab coat and say, let me hold your hand and have the bedside manner. So, you know, that's extreme thinking. Uh, But I fundamentally think that uh, Mm -hmm. within the next 25 years, in the lifetime of my kids, in the certainly next uh, 50 years, I think it'll be fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And what that world looks like, God only knows. So with that statement... Mm -hmm. Uh, nearer term, what do I think will happen uh, for the consumption of media? Technologies like Heliograph will become smarter and smarter. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we've been discussing, uh, it could be used to worsen the filter bubble, could be used to make it better. Uh, I, I, I worry a lot that it'll get worse, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're able to add the concept of deep fakes in there, where it's virtually impossible. but You need another AI to detect that this is bad. Yeah, just for the audience, deep fakes are, for yes.
1: example, videos with, yes. let's say, a world leader declaring yes. nuclear war yes. to a country, and Absolutely. you can't yeah. say that it's a yes. fake.
0: It's it's based off of your face, mm-hmm. based off of your voice, uh, the lip. Movements, Your eye movements are synchronized and put together in such a deep way that a normal person cannot tell whether this is real or not. Uh, so if we have proliferation of those types, I think the policing of that will become very tricky uh, and very difficult. For that
1: reason alone, a publishing company like The Post needs to become really tech-savvy yes. if they want to remain yes. their brand as yes. an
0: authority yes. on, on news yes. and information. And one of the things which is what we are working on is... Okay, this is an interesting concept just in general. Look, if you look at an uh, aeroplane or, or a car or, or even some commercial products that we buy, there's a supply chain that yields that product Uh, 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 or, or drugs for example and when there is a defect you look in the supply chain to see where things might have gone wrong but the point i'm making is the integrity of that product depends upon verifying the supply chain you know something goes wrong and there needs to be a recall in a car they will trace it back to Here, this is the airbag from this vendor that caused the problem. But there's an entire system built to make the integrity look good. I think that content needs that type of supply chain. okay? And that is what will help with the deep fakes. Because the end product will look like a deep fake. But if you can inspect the supply chain, it's unlikely that a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the Washington Post will have created that, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you can have a a, a way for a system like ARC, now, now we are going a little bit into the publishing world, but in our systems, we have this technology called WebSched, which is the planning tool for the newsroom. We know exactly what happened to that story every step of the way, till it went onto the web or app or whatever. We know who the photographer was. We know which photograph got selected. We know when the video got added, by whom, who's the author, how much time did it spend uh, in the editorial uh, review, how much time did it spend uh, with the copy editor. We know all this. And so when the story goes online, is there a way maybe through blockchain to basically say that the integrity of this story is signed by so-and-so. And so now what does it appear like on the web? I don't know. There could be a small gleam, which you can click on to look at the entire immutable uh, workflow of that. You know, now people ask me, what about if I'm an individual blogger, I can't have access to Arctus. to Damp it like that. So those questions, I don't know how to answer. But I. But now we are digressing a bit. But yeah, in the world of absolute deep fakes, one way to look at the integrity of that would be to check the supply chain of that mm-hmm. story, you know? Um, and then in other what else can happen in the world of... Look, I mean, I just... My wife and I, after a long argument, uh, for my son who turned 10... We bought him an Oculus thing. He wanted an Xbox. We went one step further and bought him an Oculus uh, thing. And, you know, I mean, he's going to grow up feeling that those 3D worlds are natural. There's a game in there that talks about navigating space. And you go through and here's Jupiter and, and the moons are to size, the distance is to size, the color... So much different than consuming that content in text or in video. So how much will AR and VR augment the way that you consume media? I do think that it will become much, much, much bigger part of your diet than it is now in the next 5-10 years as the costs drop uh, for these devices or your phone gets better at it. Uh, Definitely that's part of it. And to generate that type of content will require AI systems. I don't think the way that those tool sets are done today, where your journalists have to train to take a story, and th- there will be a large part of it which is automated, uh, which I think the machines will do better than the humans will. Um, so consumption through um, new new ways uh, driven and produced by AI uh, you know, evolution of deep fakes as heliograph-type technology becomes more mainstream and more accessible for everybody. Um, the third piece that I think is not too far away uh, with respect um, uh, to AI um, is this holy grail of uh, personalization. You know, you look at Amazon's personalization. I've looked at it. They are recommending products, you know, And uh, you try to see how much of that technology works in news, and you have to adapt it significantly for news. Because like you said, uh, news is ephemeral. You know, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And something that is happening in Pakistan may have no interest to you today, but tomorrow uh, India and Pakistan have a close to a nuclear confrontation, and somebody sitting in Zurich now is suddenly interested in what's going on in Pakistan, you know. And then that conflict settles and they're no longer interested again. Um, so it's very different than product recommendation. The, the news is very different. I think that, and we are working on this, I think that there are some secret AI learnings that we will be able to work on in the next 5, 6, 10 years that news recommendations might be able to get to that sweet spot of what you like versus what is new, where then you will be truly delighted with what you get. Uh, See, because it's not impossible. hmm? I don't know if you have a close friend or a brother or a mother. I know what stories my mom will like. That's why I keep texting her stuff. Uh, How do I know that? You know, how do I know that? There is some sense that exists because of the long period of time I've spent with her, to know what she will like or what my wife will like. Or I send certain things to my kids. It's because I kind of know them. So can there be AI systems that understand you and therefore be your personal news gatherer? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. It's coming. It's
1: um These are very exciting uh, thoughts yes. to yes. slowly but surely wrap up our yes. conversation. Yes. Um, but, I still have one last question, Yeah. Uh, because with with all of that talk about experimentation, uh, the the products you develop and are planning to develop, and so on, um, what have been your best and or worst business decisions that you've made along that yeah. process?
0: Yeah, I, w- I would say hiring, um, especially in the technology world, uh, a great hire. Mark Zuckerberg calls them the 1,000x engineer. Others have called them 10x engineers, where a single person is worth 10 or in extreme case, 1,000 people. I think 1,000 is too much, but uh, at least <laughs> 10. Um, and then Steve Jobs would say A, people attract, a, a uh, class people attract A class. B class actually attract C class. So hiring the right people when I've gotten it right has moved the needle. Conversely, hiring the wrong people can set you back significantly. I think it applies to all fields. It especially applies to technology. So many of my best decisions, worst decisions are around hiring. The one advice I have at least it's worked for me and I went through all the formal training in Microsoft for how to hire and how not to hire and at the post too but I think you have to look at the data but go with your gut. That's very important. don't don't throw the data away because your data may make you change your gut but at the end of the day if push comes to shove, go with your gut spend the time on the interview, check the references but go with your gut. More times than not, my gut has been telling me something and the data is telling me something and I say, I'm probably completely wrong and we should do this. Then, a year later, you say, I knew it. I knew this was was not going to work. Son of a gun. (laughs) Now, there have been exceptions, but in general, the most wide swings have been that. Mm -hmm. So... That's one thing. Other decisions, abandoning things before we should have abandoned them. Killing things too early. And it all goes back to the same thing. Metrics were not clear. Lots of people involved. Pocket vetoes. Oh, he doesn't want to kill it. It's too difficult to say no to. Let's just keep going. We can't prove it's not working anyway. Why? We never set up the metrics up front. In other cases, pet projects where you say, oh, I think it'll work. Give it another three months. Oh, let's tweak this small thing. Give it. Once again, no clarity on what we were trying to do. So your biases keep it going. Costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the things
1: it's really nice I, I have the gut feeling that people will very much like this episode oh well I hope <laughs> so even if
0: the data says it they didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> always go with the <laughs> so
1: Shaila yeah.
0: thank you very much you for welcome. your valuable time welcome. and this
1: exciting conversation thank Thanks you for so having
0: me thank you for having me
1: Thanks again to Shailash Prakash, Chief Information Officer of the Washington Post and one of the most influential minds in tech. For more of these insightful conversations about innovation, digital transformation, change management, leadership and more, please check out other episodes of the Sparker podcast. Simply visit the website sparker.ch slash podcast. That is SP arkr.ch slash podcast or you can also consider subscribing to this show on apple Podcasts, spotify soundcloud or wherever you listen to your most favorite podcasts i'm looking forward to the next episode and i hope you'll join me again next time when i'll uncover the mindset and tactics of exceptional people in innovation change and leadership have a good one and see you next time